if, if we're talking about the end goal of like corrective exercise or prehab, you know, quote unquote, the end goal is to not have to do it anymore, right? Is to yes. be prepared yeah, to be done with right? it, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah, to be done with it, right? And then not have these redundancies built into the program. That was Kyle Dobbs, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. They've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into Airbands. Simplyfaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro, and this is a new option for velocity based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here. When it comes to training and performance, it can be very easy to overprescribe low level and regressive activity, such as overprescribing prehab and correctives, or overprescribing auxiliary work on the tail end of a program because you have 30 minutes of time to fill and you are just throwing a bunch of random exercises in. When we can see the state of the athlete in front of us and how to ideally stimulate them with the optimal zone of training and to take a wide macro to micro view of things, we can really optimize our training sessions. Today's guest is so good at taking complex ideas and putting them into simple, actionable training advice relevant to that athlete or individual in front of you. Kyle Dobbs is the owner and founder of Compound Performance. He has an extensive biomechanics and human movement background, and he's been a two-time previous guest on this podcast. On today's show, Kyle will speak on where and when we tend to get overly complex or overly regressive in our training and programming. He'll talk about what he prioritizes when it comes to assigning training for clients, as well as a macro-to-micro way of thinking in looking at the entirety of a training session and the training process. Kyle will get into specifics on what this style of thinking and prioritization means for him in things like the big lift, speed training, and core work. And he'll also touch on some biomechanical differences, such as infrasternal angle and how that plays a role in his programming with clients. It's always great to sit down and chat with Kyle. He's such a brilliant mind and has such a wise perspective on the process of training. I'm excited to get you guys this show. Let's get on to episode 311. Kyle, I know you've been um, doing some run training, and last time we chatted, or I guess the first time that you were the, the solo guest on the show, you had been getting into run training after a little bit of a hiatus, and you were a high-level 400 runner back in the day, and, and still are from, you know, as per your age from watching you. I'm curious as to the things you've been learning in the last year or two as 
your run training has progressed and in your own training since we last talked? So, yeah, I think that's, um, the, the big focus has definitely been just working on like lower body, ankle, foot, elasticity, and kind of a lot of, a lot of it, especially like extensive work, trying to get back into just tissue quality and, and tendon quality, especially because I was getting towards the end of last year, a little bit of like Achilles tendonitis. My feet were like, my plantar was starting to hurt a little bit here and there and bother me. And, and then just kind of building up into, you know, the, the more intensive work and building more stiffness and more power. And it's been fun. It's been an adventure. It's, it's something that when I was younger, I didn't really have to train that much. I was always kind of a, a natural runner and jumper. And, uh, now doing that 40 pounds heavier is definitely been, uh, an experience yeah, from that perspective. So. Yeah, and I, I know you were a basketball player when you were younger as well. And, and Will Rattel was just saying this when he was on, like the idea of, well, if you're playing basketball or sports, I mean, that really takes care of the extensive plyo. Like that sport is the extensive plyo portion. But then we stop. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. I, I, not by choice. I mean, I wish there was more pickup games around here. You know, I'd love to get into that or pick up Ultimate Frisbee or something. And I probably should. But it's like you do, f- the further you get away from that and just spending time in the weight room, there's not a lot of replacements just you know, or any just with weights, like you really have to start doing a little bit of balance work outside that. There's definitely not. It's a big difference. And yeah, I mean, when I was in high school and and even into college, I played basketball and ran track for two of the years. And it's like, you're just doing it year round. You know, Mm -hmm. I was, I'd be, you know, in my season, then I have AAU all summer long and I have AAU track and then I'd have track season. And you know, the, the running and jumping, the bouncing, like you're just, you're, you're so covered and probably even over covered yeah, on yeah. a lot of those qualities that you never train them really, you know? And, and at that point in my life, general strength and force output was kind of a rate limiter for me, you know? So w- lifting weights did, you know, kind yeah, of absolutely. improve some of those qualities in, in moderation. But now as I've, you know, for the last decade, primarily lifted and, and done some rowing and cycling and things and not as much running the elasticity and, and the ability to be bouncy. And, and that's been a challenge for me, for sure. And something that I definitely lost to a large extent, just through not using it. Yeah. Hey, same here. <laughs> been, yeah. been down that road yet. Yeah, I it just, yep. I value like basketball so much in that regards, or even, even stuff like, um, like I remember even racquetball seemed to be pretty decent. I, I set my all time, like standing vert PR. I mean, that's not necessarily elasticity, but I was so warmed up from that, like mm-hmm. plyo perspective. That was always Maybe I could do pickleball. I mean, that's, that wouldn't be as good as basketball, but it'd be at least be something. <laughs> be pickleball something. is, uh, is that's underrated. Though. I've got a client who does pickleball pretty competitively. And I had to, I literally had to YouTube it to see what it was. And I was like, oh, these guys are athletes. Like, I get it. Like, I, I see where that's at now. So it was, I was surprised when I, when I actually looked into it a little bit. So, yeah, I have not yet actually played it. And I feel like I really need to. I need to like set it up in the street or something. <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, I mean, I've even played. I actually haven't even played spike ball. I know a lot of people on this podcast talk about spike ball. I haven't even played that. Like, I, I feel like what kind of podcaster am I that I haven't, you know, played these games that I was talking about? But it's on my it's on my list. So I'll, I'll need to get to that. it's. If I can't play basketball, I feel like I can at least do something like that. Spike ball is like that's a beach game for me. Like that that's about as uh, as much fun as you can have. Like in a setting like that, I think it's it's a good time. You get three or four people into it. Yeah, yeah, definitely on the list. Okay, so. One of the main themes, or I guess you could say it's the main theme for our chat today, is I really enjoy how you put everything in perspective. And especially, I think anyone who's been down like your social media feed, we can get really, really complex and really in the weeds with things. And we can do that unnecessarily. And I've definitely had my fair share of that as a coach 
especially in my days where I was a strength coach primarily. And it was like, I, I felt like I saw that and I probably overexplained things to athletes simply enough. Like I explained things more than they needed to be explained because I like doing that. Maybe that's why I'm a podcast host now or whatever. Like I, I like these ideas, but the athletes, I don't think always needed that. And, and that was just one example, maybe just in the coaching end, but I think it's really easy to, and I get emails as well or messages saying, well, there's like so much complex stuff out there. How do I manage it all? How do I handle it all? What do you see as being some of the, and you know, obviously there's probably a lot, but what are some of the primary elements in, in performance, biomechanics, mobility, uh, if there's any in particular that stand out to you, do you feel that we make overly complex uh, where yeah. the solution could be quite simple? And then we can obviously get into the details. Yeah. I mean, I, I think just conceptually within the industry, you know, because everything you just said is, is just intimately familiar with me as someone who is just curious about this and has gone down a lot of, a lot of rabbit holes and, and loves loves explaining it, loves talking about it. And has probably had a lot of eye rolls from, from clients and athletes, you know, in the past and glazed off stairs. And I think the biggest thing that I'm looking at now is, you know, a lot of the education systems that, that strength coaches are, are getting into are now more so directed at more rehabilitative, you know, qualities <laughs> in a lot of ways. And, and I think as we are trying to transition those things into performance, we're kind of missing the boat or, or missing the forest or the tree sometimes with looking at just like stimulus accommodation and the ability to, to actually apply stress to some of these interventions or drills or exercises. And if we can't match the stimulus or the stress that the athlete's going to be encountering during their activity or their, or their sport, it's probably not a, it's, it's probably not going to have a huge return on, on their actual performance in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, when we're looking at, when I'm looking at applying some of these more complex drills, one of the things that I'm always considering is complexity is inherently going to have an inverse relationship with repeatability and intensity in, in a lot of ways, right? So if I'm looking at an athlete who needs to be able to do things at a, a really high stimulus or has to have, be able to do things at a very high capacity during their sport and, and repeat it quite a bit, the, the more complexity that I'm throwing into their session, the probably less carryover it actually has. And, you know, these things coming off an injury or coming off a period of detraining, like that sensory motor stuff and, and some of the, the more kind of quote unquote postural things or, or structural things that we might be working through there, like those might be very beneficial of, as far as establishing a, a baseline for movement. But the closer we get to actual athletics and competition and performance, probably the further away from some of those overly complex things. And we probably need to get a little bit more task specific. And, and, and when I talk about, you know, task specificity, I'm not always just talking about like biomechanics or movement. I'm really talking about the types of stress that we're applying to the athletes training, because that's, that's where I think people break down. Like if we're talking about biomechanical breakdowns or technique breakdowns, like for me, it's usually load management or fatigue, right? It's usually something that is the athlete's not necessarily prepared for from a intensity perspective or a volume perspective, right? And we're either looking at occlusion rates or fatigue or something, or them just not being able to produce or resist enough force to complete the task in front of them. Yeah. You know, I think of it as uh, you were know, a system of systems where, where it's, it's not, it's not just a linear thing. And if it was completely linear, I think this would all be a little bit easier and simpler mm -hmm. in some ways. It'd be more like a car manual that's like, all right, I'm going to go to this page for this problem and you know, whatever. Yep. <laughs> but it's not like that. 
So we're maybe an example would be good. Like, let's say you you have a client and they don't have any current limitations. Maybe they have some you know, injury history or whatever. Mm-hmm. But how much are you looking into their if, if they're currently fine, they're ready to train. They maybe have an injury history. They're kind of concerned about it. They want to shore up. Right. Like that's probably pretty common. How are you looking at that in light of how much do you focus on bringing up weaknesses versus training strengths? And then as well as the gen- the idea of having just general things in there that kind of sort these things out on their own a little bit, like the assault bike. I, I know you've yep. posted on that. I was on Kyle Waugh's podcast where he was talking about that a little bit. Tell me about how you are balancing some of these things with a session with as an example. Yeah. So, I mean, from starting with the assessment, you know, when I'm, when I'm working with an athlete, especially like the biggest thing that I always want to prioritize first because it gives context to everything else is understanding their task requirements right so if there's if they're a sprinter there's going to be certain categories or certain qualities that we need to be able to fulfill you know from from a physical or physiological perspective if they're a basketball player there's going to be other things if they're a football player there's going to be other things so i want to know just even in a general sense like what kind of physical or physiological qualities that are going to be required by that person's activity and, and then from there, the assessment is really going to be individualized to understanding their abilities respective to those things, right? So if they have a rate limiter of force production, or if they have a rate limiter of deceleration or change of direction, or if it is a biomechanical thing where they don't have maybe the ability to internally rotate for lateral movement or, or something of that nature, at that point, that's what I'm going to start prioritizing from, from a limiter perspective, because I want to be able to essentially pick the lowest hanging fruit or the biggest return on investment from a training perspective for them. Whatever is going to improve their ability to perform that task at a high level is what I want to prioritize. And those are kind of going to go into my primary buckets if I'm looking at a programming perspective. And for me, it's like I program most of my athletes because a lot of them are field sport athletes. They're not necessarily strength sport or, or something more specific. So I typically will use like a concurrent training model, right? So I've got some some primary selections. I've got secondary selections that are going to be kind of my more specificity-based accessories. And then I've got tertiary selections that are going to be my more general, you know, accessory base. And I will kind of fill the the primaries and secondaries up with the specificity-based things based on that person's rate limiter. And then the tertiary stuff is where I'll, I'll use a lot of the kind of fill in the gaps, quote unquote, exercises where I want to make sure that I don't necessarily lose those qualities and, and I can build them up a little bit, but I'm probably going to build them up at either a lower volume or a lower intensity based on the ability. And those typically will fall into more like kind of stability or more movement competency based or, or even more hypertrophy based, maybe if that's something that they need for their sport. And they're going to be, you know, a little lower volume, definitely lower intensity, you know, just from an overall training perspective. And that's where, you know, for me, it's like, if somebody does have trouble rotating, you know, potentially that might be a little bit of a rate limiter, but they don't necessarily have any pain from it. And they don't have huge performance issues. Like I don't necessarily need to bring that person. I don't need to regress their exercise selection so that we're only working through rotationally based exercises, right? I can still do some bilateral stuff. I can still do some, some unilateral things at a higher level, but then I can hop them on, you know, from a a general conditioning perspective, I can give them more assault bike or something where they are going to be moving a rib cage. They are going to be working through 
shoulder flexion and extension and, and scapular retraction and protraction. They are going to be working on a little bit of contralateral patterning from the lower to upper body. Um, and I can work on some general movement qualities at a fairly low stimulus, like if I'm talking zone two or three, you know, from that perspective and, and give them a little bit of stress with it rather than kind of working on some of these like more static positions or really low level sensory motor exercise selections. Would you say that your general, like almost the general mentality behind that is working macro to micro rather than micro to macro, if that makes sense? Yeah, for most of my people, yeah. And I think, uh, uh, again, uh, the demographic I work with probably has a big influence on that, right? Because I'm not, I'm not generally working with people who are coming out of post-rehabilitative work or need rehab. I tend to focus more on performance-based training with people who are otherwise very healthy, you know? And I think that's where if I have somebody who really needs to zoom in to the micro and we really have to get into the biomechanics weeds and, and decrease the training stress, like that's, those are people that I probably am going to refer out to another specialist. And, and we've definitely, you know, my business partner and I, Matt, like we, we work hand in hand with a few different physical therapists that we will refer out to when we have somebody kind of coming into that. And, and they'll refer people to us once their kind of bridge program is completed and they want to go back into their sport. Right. And, and I think that's where having a good network allows you to really focus on the things that, you know, you're good at and the things that you really like to do, you know, and I think that's, I decided, you know, kind of discovered early on in my career that I don't like doing, I don't like being the rehab guy or the post rehab mm -hmm. guy or the corrective exercise guy or whatever, because that's not how I like to train myself. And I have all the respect in the world for people who like to dig into the weeds with that, but I like to look at things definitely through a different lens. And I think kind of looking at the macro to the micro is more so the route that I like to take, you know, from that perspective. Yeah. It strikes me that, I mean, even in, you know, it's interesting. I remember it, when Boosh Nexter was on most recently on this podcast, like he worked, he also worked, uh, spent a lot of time in rehab and he had had a lot of success in that position. And he did so because he was treating it with the same angle in many respects as just training someone who was, you know, perfectly, perfectly fine, like at a hundred percent because of intensity. And I think a lot of it's like, you know, in a rehab situation, just lots of like TheraBand stuff and not like a real intense progression. And so maybe, I, and, and I almost think of that as like a macro to micro or a large to small, the big rock is intensity. That's your macro. And then the micro is like the little biomechanical things you're working on. Yeah. So I'm sure it's true even in rehab is what I'm trying to say. Um, but it does strike me that like in all those micros, like there's these little liabilities that you have to go into and have this understanding. And maybe that's where you, you could maybe build from the micro up is, is mm -hmm. once the, there's that little liability, then you have to spend more time in that. But even still just this, the top down approach of belief and being motivated and, yeah. you know, not wanting to just sit on a table and, you know, like, and, and, you know, expecting that the, the person is just going to make you better, but you putting the, in the work and, like all those things, I think there's there's still like principles that need to be in a place, regardless of whether you're in the the rehab or the the higher performance setting. But it does strike me that there would be still probably a little bit more bottom up in a rehab versus a a performance. And, and even Boo talked about that too. He's like you for the gist of it is like you take care of the big rocks, and a lot of times those little like biomechanical nuances will kind of work themselves out. He, that's speaking from a technical perspective, like yeah. someone's jump technique or sprint technique and stuff like that. And that's I I think I would kind of that would be something that I would agree with, right? And and I do think again, you know, if I'm 
if I've got an athlete who's coming off of an injury and we are looking at reestablishing biomechanics, right at the, uh, or joint actions or something of that nature, like that is where, you know, you do start super low stem and then you grade their exposure on up. Right. And I think there is a lot to be said for that. When I'm working with somebody who is otherwise injury free, I kind of start with the stress and then, mm-hmm. and then I pick out the things that I'm seeing from a, a compensatory strategy standpoint or something of that nature. And that allows me that if I am going to go macro or if I am going to go you know, macro to micro, once I get micro, it is going to be very specific, right? And it will mm-hmm. be specific in regards to the context of the stimulus required for what they're doing too, right? Because that's, that's always been my, my main issue with kind of the, the biomechanics led approach is we typically take biomechanics down to such a low stimulus environment that, you know, we get like, you know, kind of quote unquote optimal movement, right? We can decrease a hip shift or we can, we can get a joint action or or a rotational aspect of of a joint action to where we want it. But at the same time, once that person is under the same amount of stress or we increase the stress or stimulus on them, they're typically going to self-organize back into the Mm -hmm. patterning that they're, they're the most comfortable with, right? Just from an autonomous perspective. And that's where, you know, whether it's, you know, way back in the FMS days or, or even like looking more so into like table testing from a PRI perspective, it's like passive assessments just don't usually give me a lot of information that's usable. You know, it kind of shows me that somebody has the potential to access those ranges of motion, but it doesn't tell me they necessarily have the ability to access them under stress, which their sport's going to be stress, right? Their activity is going to be stress. So I want to make sure that if I am going to be working and focusing purely on biomechanics, or if that's going to be my focus, it's within the context of the activity they're doing and not, you know, on a table or not with a dowel or or something of that nature. It's going to be something that's going to be a little closer resembling to their actual task demands. Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out performance herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs flagship products, pine pollen, for free. Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Empire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chiliagit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You could check those out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you, which is that you can get free, you do pay a few dollars shipping, but you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse that is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix formula. And you can get that for free along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, well, even the, the FMS, I think, yeah, would be the ultimate example of going micro to macro, you know, and that's why the research showed it didn't really predict injuries. Like, yeah, it makes sense with that in mind. But I think there's table tests that are definitely a lot more controlled than that. Like the FMS, you can use different strategies to to accomplish some of those things versus. Yeah. And, and it's so subjective, too. Right. It's like it's it, yes, it's a empirical scoring system. But if, if you and I were both assessing the same person and just writing our scores down and not saying them out loud, like there could be a huge variance in what that person's scores actually were from a, you know, a one, two, three perspective, you know, as we kind of oh, went yeah. through a lot of those things too. So it, it's, it's like judging a dunk contest. No, he got yeah, a seven, he got a nine, yeah. he has a 10. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. 
Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. I, you know, something that has has definitely helped me the more I learn. I mean, and my mind is definitely a macro to micro mind. Like that's just the way that my mind works, and I'm I'm aware of that. I I am my mind is biased towards working that way, and even in the sense of I'm probably more interested in looking at an athlete's like if we look at their them move and look at look for potential liabilities. Like I almost am better at seeing it show up in just a sprint versus them like lying down doing a. A straight leg race test and i'm trying to get better at both like i'm trying to see how each shows up in the other and and knowing the table tests helped me to learn a little bit more about what's going on in the 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 bigger tests i guess you could say that the big complex like running and jumping and i'm appreciative for them that they, they help me to to see that but i feel like for me it's like and this is where i've gone and it's been really helpful is watching an athlete sprint for example and it's like wow your your elbow is coming up really far on the back side of your body to, to, as your swing leg comes forward which is showing that it's ha- you you're compensating to get hip extension and then you go in to see the lower back and then it's like maybe i should look at your table test again because we didn't look at it very well in the first place you know like then trying to i just see things more easily in, in that respect almost or looking at like a vertical jump and it used to be i used to think like if someone's doing a standing vert and their torso doesn't get all the way extended before they toe off i'm just like well, your glutes are not working. Or so, you know, I didn't view that as a hip extension issue, like yeah. an actual structural issue. And now I can see that I'm like, oh, I should probably like, maybe we can get into that portion of it from this performance mm-hmm. perspective. That's helped me. That's how at least my mind works when I see these things, at least better than, than going through it the other way with, with someone who doesn't have like, who doesn't come to you like in, you know, in pain or anything like that. And, and I think that's even where, you know, you had a post on this actually not that long ago where you kind of compared three sprinters side by side that were all, you know, utilizing and leveraging different strategies based on, you know, probably a handful of of different things. And I always kind of think the same thing when I watch like a basketball game live, right. Where you have so many different, just morphologies, right. You have height ranges from five ten to seven foot, potentially you've got weight differences from, you know, 160 pounds to 250 pounds potentially. And, you know, with that, you're going to have individuals leveraging a lot of different movement strategies based on what they're trying to accomplish. And I think, you know, one of the big things that I've always looked at is, and especially I'm probably hyper aware of this because I am a taller person than based on that, you know, with my long femurs, like, especially like squatty squats, for instance, are going to be really hard for me, you know, and there's, I need to use different constraints and probably different loading schemes and some other things to get in that range. And when I look at things like that from a just pure athletics perspective where we don't have constraints, right? We don't have different, I can't front load my, my seven footer when he's, you know, trying to jump up <laughs> and, and dunk a basketball, right? He's just gonna, he's gonna move the way he moves where it's like, if I'm looking at athletes in the pure sense of athletes and I'm not looking at somebody who's injured, I have a much higher return on helping that person leverage their morphology and their strategies for success rather than trying to change those to some kind of, you know, model or optical model or or whatever, you know, from a, a joint, from like a joint angle perspective, you know, and I think that's where my feelings have probably changed a lot on this over the last, you know, three or four years where maybe I was looking a lot at a movement standardization of sorts, you know, that was a little, a little more generalized and not necessarily taking in individual morphology and individual strategies for task completion based on that. And, and I think that's where now if somebody's doing well and they're and they're performing well and they're performing at a high level and they're pain free, there's a lot of things that I just don't care that much about mm-hmm. anymore. You know, and, and if if we're looking at something like what you're describing with like a standing burden, I'm like, oh, I can probably help this person. 
they're probably leaving a little bit of room on the table as far as inches on a vertical or, or mm-hmm. the ability to produce force through the hips or something of that nature. At that point, like I can definitely work through different exercise selections that might kind of repattern or train those patterns. But especially if that person is is pain free, like I'm not going to take them to, you know, kind of the our traditional like quote unquote glute firing corrective exercise patterns. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to kind of re-leverage their strength work to adopt a, a better pattern or a better force vector for hip extension, you know, on that pattern or something of that nature, where where it might be something that's easy enough to just say, like, hey, let's work on some front-loaded squats so that we're we're looking at a little bit more vertical translation of the pelvis in a different pelvic orientation rather than a backloaded squat, right? Where we might be a little flared and we might be a little horizontal translation of the pelvis, right? And we might be getting into our rectors a little bit more from that perspective. So I can still load them. I can still apply a high stimulus. I'm not decreasing or taking that away from their training, you know, through that process. Yeah. So you're basically saying that you've, as you've progressed, you've become more like, as long as you're not in pain, let's be more macro. Let's train at a higher complexity. Let's avoid Um, redundant, I guess you could say like rudimentary or remedial things that you just don't need at this point. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's the biggest thing probably is like, I, I will do just about anything I can to not regress somebody, Hmm. you know, through that process. And again, if they're, if they are in pain or they are in discomfort, like that, that's a different conversation. But if we're just talking about maybe uh, an area of opportunity based on a performance gap or rate limiter, at that point, I'm just going to look more at different exercise selections and, and kind of try to find a way to, to keep the same stimulus and just apply it a different way through a different exercise selection or a different loading scheme. Yeah. One thing that this podcast just went out recently was uh, Rob Assis was talking about an athlete who, because this also just it is an interesting perspective on, on a potential rate limiter and the idea of, oh, we need to regress. But Rob talked about this athlete who had a foot that would just go into crazy external rotation like when he would do different things running or jumping but as soon as they pulled him on an overspeed like sprint device he actually because of the velocity he had to self-correct and that foot actually hit more forward and so it's like there's some sort of compensatory ability this athlete had to do it and it actually wasn't a regression it was actually a progression into more complexity and they showed that yeah. i don't think every athlete's going to be able to do that but i do think it's interesting to even think about like complexity and velocity as a dial you can play with that mm-hmm. You know, and again, too, I don't, you know, you could say like, you know, if you, if you did that all the time or did it forever, that might not necessarily be a great thing if someone's really compensating to do that. But it's, it's interesting because it does change your perspective on how much do we always need to regress things? Cause it's like even stand, I think st- it's pretty much, I mean, I think it's changing, but a standard in strength and conditioning even too is like prehab, like do your yeah. prehab. <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. It- which again is like just accessory work, you know. I I think the the idea behind prehab, I don't have that many issues with. I think because to me that is just like filling in movement gaps for a lot of people. Maybe the term prehab and kind of the way that it's been marketed in the industry is like an injury prevention or something of that nature. I, I do have more of a problem with, you know. I think just personally, where if you've got a well-rounded program that is individualized to the athlete in front of you that is about as much you know kind of quote-unquote injury prevention as you're going to be able to achieve right you know and i think that's where when i see things like that and i see you know those terms getting thrown around and and i and typically the way they're applied not to be super generalist but it's like through very low level like 
activation-based mm-hmm. drills or mobility-based drills or whatever. Like to me, that that shows kind of a, a misunderstanding of like what actual programming and periodization and the ability to dose stress and exercise selection actually is for a lot of people where it's like, that's just good accessory work, most likely, you know, and again, when I'm talking about even looking at like rate limiters, like, you know, sometimes that's going to be just general strength and ability to produce force and their primary exercise selections will be kind of bilateral sagittal lifts, right. That have the biggest opportunity that, but sometimes you, know, you might have an app as it, the ability to, to produce force very well for that activity. Like I'm an example of that. Like I'm trying to get back into like running and, and running middle distance and, you know, based on my rate limiters, it's not strength mm-hmm. in the ability to produce Yeah, if anyone's seen you squat, right? yeah, definitely not your strength. Yeah, like I've got a, a 600 pound deadlift, right? Like that's not like, that's not, that's not what's holding me back from running a, a 530 mile, you know, at my age, right? So it's more so looking at like at that point, like I've dialed that stuff back in my programming significantly to work more so on other qualities, you know, from a training perspective. And, and I think if we're, if we're not giving overly generalized programming and we are actually programming to the individual and what they need, the prehab selections are, are already built into the program and it doesn't need to be something that's special or added to or added on top of. It's just your training is addressing that athlete's rate limiters. It's addressing you know, their strengths and their weaknesses. And it's programming them out from a stimulus perspective that, that's going to be appropriately appropriately applicable to their actual activity and prepare them for their activity, right? And because that's just what we're talking about is you know this preparation, you know, for for their actual task. That's what training is. So it's really just focusing on the right things, you know. So I, I think the general thought process of of prehab, I don't mind that much because it's just preparation, you know, from from my perspective. The marketing of it, I, I think, is yeah problematic in a lot of ways yeah sign up for you know x like mobility or prehab wad or whatever <laughs> yeah, right? do, like, do these five things yeah. to you know avoid back pain or, or whatever yeah it's just like no that's it's not gonna work for a lot of people well, yeah so. even too it's just to think i mean I, I think like are we designed as humans and you, you just watch like animals of course like to have to do these five things before we do everything well, like it, that's well, just kind of an insult almost in some ways to our physiology you know what i'm saying uh, yeah i mean you and anyone who has kids and watches their kids play on the playground you know real like with no warm-up drills and, yeah. and none, of, none of these you know kind of things that we do is is very aware of this where it's just like uh like we're, we're kind of built to be able to run and sprint and do a lot of these things like that's our bodies have evolved to do those things over the last hundreds of thousands of years, you know, essentially. So when we start looking at what's really needed, like the, the gym is kind of the foreign or the alien environment, you know, for, for humans. Yeah. Right? Relative like to what we evolved to do or what we did, you know, as yeah, cave, you know, cavemen or cave women, right? Yeah. Like, just all, like, that, you all know, those types like, of primal movements. Yeah. I'll, I'll take my kids to the playground. It's like, they're jumping out of swing sets, like 10 feet in the air and just landing and rolling and running, you know, with no, no pain, no nothing. Like I just watched, you know, my youngest at a, at a soccer camp and they broke straight into drills. There was no warm up, There was no mobility. There was no nothing. They're just all of a sudden sprinting up and down the field, reacting, kicking a ball, chasing people around. Right. You know, so you, you start kind of watching that and, and you start realizing like, Hey, like I, might not need to be doing all the things that I am doing just to prepare to train. And, and if I do need to be doing those things, it's probably 
I probably need to change my goal to get to the point where I don't need to do as much of them. Right. And that, and that's something I've said for a long time is like the, if, if we're talking about the end goal of like corrective exercise or prehab, you know, quote unquote, the, the end goal is to not have to do it anymore. Right. It's yes. to be it's, prepared yeah, to be done with right? it. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's to be done with it. Right. And then not have these redundancies built into the pro- program. So yeah. And anybody who's been doing those things, whether it's, you know, mobility, like general mobility work or, different types of, you know, activation drills or, or even respiration drills, you know, some of these things that we do and you've been doing those for, you know, one, two, three, five, ten 10 years, you know, you, you kind of have to look at it at that point. Like maybe those aren't actually addressing the issue. Maybe those aren't the things that are going to be impacting your performance or your quote unquote static posture or, or whatever your, your kind of these structural orientations that we talk about maybe you do need something that's a little more active and a little more stressful, you know, that's going, that's going to, again, be a little bit more applicable to your activities. Yeah. I have a couple of thoughts. One was Christian Thibodeau talking about like the ability of, I feel like better tr- athletes can transfer more complex things more easily. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. like they can go macro more easily mm-hmm. and, and get it and like infuse it versus people who might not have that level of body awareness, athleticism might need to spend more time doing more of the micro type stuff. You know, I was thinking about too, I think there's value to knowing how to start going more macro with the, like just from the sense of like, let's say you have a hip extension, you know, you have poor hip extension quality and on the, the micro level, it's like, okay, we got like the, you know, the, the supine cross connects and, and all those types of things. But then, well, I mean, yeah. And ideally, I guess you could go and be better and, and sprint and just be better. And, and I think you can, but I also, you could also just do like hill sprints, <laughs> which yeah. puts you in a position to leverage hip extension better and do it yeah. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. <laughs> I mean, I, I, um, that was a thing. I feel like I had the opportunity to work with an elite 800, uh, high school runner for his indoor season a couple of years ago. And I, uh, you know, and I, I know more about how he ran now, the more I know about my biomechanics than I used to, but it, it, maybe it's almost a blessing in some senses because the biggest thing that was done to correct, I mean, he was a, just a bounce runner, just pure bounce and had mm-hmm. almost no knee lift. And I'm not a big lift your knees guy, but I mean, it, it was to the point where it also, I think, indicated a lack of hip extension and hip flexion. Mm-hmm. Like if you put him on a lying table test, I'm sure his hip, ex, hip, hip flexion would have been really, really bad. But just running hills was a really big part of what we did. And I know that helped him a ton. Like I, I know it. Yeah. And I think that that really helped him to, to really push the envelope with his speed. And that was just something on the macro level, you know? And I think yeah. if I would have gone back in time and been like, well, let's do this, this, and this on the micro. Like, I don't, I don't know if that would have been the best use. And two, I feel like every time you're telling an athlete that they have a liability, you have to be speak carefully, you know, because yes. especially at, like the ultimate is if you can just, all right, you, you're watching them. All right. Yeah. And you're seeing as the coach or trainer, yeah, that's a little that's a little wonky. And then you like sneak stuff in, and then you trick them. You know, you trick, trick them into yeah. doing stuff that's going to help, and not you don't always have to, especially if they're not in pain too. It's like a typical training situation. And hey, let's just do this thing to optimize your performance a little bit more, and 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 how we language that. Yeah, I, I think there's a few thoughts I have with that. Is the first one is I think hill sprints. Hills in general are probably the most underutilized high yield activities that most more athletes could be using. Everybody has access to them, you know, somewhere probably again, maybe, maybe I'm in the Midwest. So if you're in Kansas, maybe ignore that because you probably don't have a lot of hills there. (laughs) But, but if you've got a 15 to 30 degree grade hill, like 
you can work on increased front side mechanics from a you know hip flexion perspective you can work on more force out of the hip lock on the back leg you know from that perspective you can generate more force through different tempos and different rates of speed you know from a running perspective with that and and it's free it's not specialized equipment it's not anything you can just go outside and, and start working with them and, and i think you know looking at that and even looking at like lateral propulsion and, and lateral bounds and things like that like there's a lot of cool things that you can do on them that just build more power based on you know in comparison to running on flat ground so i'm i'm a huge fan of hills for just about anyone i actually did those a couple of weeks ago and my calves have not been so wrecked <laughs> in such a long time and i was just i was actually shocked because i only ran 15 total sprints you know i ran like three different clusters of five because i've been just kind of trying to grow grade my way into it and my i mean my soleus and calves the next day felt like i did like heavy calf races you know just from from that you know so just again that's partly partially probably my my limiter of you know being able to create stiffness and power out of the ankle but it wrecked me. So I, that, I was surprised it did something, you know, from that perspective, you know, the, the second big thing there is, you know, going back to even what Christian Thibodeau was saying is I, I think the hard thing that we as just humans in general have a hard time understanding about complexity is complexity is completely subjective to the individual and their exposures. Right. And what's complex mm -hmm. for a fairly detrained lower training age athlete compared to a a high level athlete are completely different right so when we look at the ability to assimilate new information and then go out and, and do it right like higher level athletes do those things so well because they they typically have so many past exposures to rely on from that perspective and you know that's even looking at like like one of the most influential books i read probably at this point it was 10 years ago that Pat, who's been on the, the show a lot of times, actually gave to me was the, the the book on intelligence and talking about the brain as kind of a predictive model that the basis all of your inherently basis kind of all your decision making on past experiences and predictable outcomes. And if we look at complexity in terms of that, the, the more exposures you have, the more ability you have to complete a task very efficiently. And it's going to seem less complex to somebody who has more exposures than it does to somebody who has less exposure. So when you look at like high level athletes, everything from neurocognition and the ability to assimilate that information quickly and then apply it physically or physiologically is going to increase their ability to apply physical or physiological applications to a task is going to be increased because they probably have, again, more more capabilities from that perspective just through repeated exposures and repeated training and then even psychologically looking at like threat response to a new or novel stimulus is going to be lower because they have more familiarity potentially with similar things than somebody who is less exposed or a newer athlete you know and this is something you see a lot especially in like dynamic sports like basketball or, or something of that nature where people just pick up on stuff really quickly based on past exposures and, and I think there's a huge psychological component to that too, but I think that also the other side of the coin is the psychology will also always influence the the autonomics, obviously, which is going to influence the the physiological and physical outputs that person's able to put into it, even from a cortical to amygdala driven thought response. Right? It's like you don't have to dedicate as met, as much psychological or cognitive resources, so you can dedicate more physical or physiological yeah. resources. Right? So. Like all that stuff ties in so well. And I think if we start looking at complexity, not on a 
kind of linear continuum, but looking at it more based on individual exposures, all of that starts make, like making a lot more sense because you, you can't really define complexity outside of the individual experience. So that, that was, I agree with it a lot. That was a tangent. Yeah, that's okay. It it reminded me of a funny story. (laughs) I just remember of a a throws coach once in the weight room telling his athlete, he's like, he's like, and I don't 100% agree with this, but I thought it was funny. He was like, you don't think I'll do the thinking coaching. You just throw, throw the shot put. (laughs) I don't agree with that 100%, but basically, I mean, again, but the the idea of like, if an athlete is spending, we all know those athletes who are overthinkers, like who put way too much forebrain energy into what they do and they're reducing their physiological output and i think it's interesting too like i i have i don't know if we'll get to this but even isometrics you know like an isometric mm-hmm. lunge hold or something like that you get about four minutes into that four thirty into that hold a good one and tell me how much you're trying to analyze it at that point <laughs> not a lot and you're surviving it yeah, you're yeah. surviving at that point yeah, but it's that's to me that's kind of like a flow state. There's there's things that you I think that you can become attuned to at that point that maybe you feel more that you couldn't have learned on some level just like thinking about yeah, you know, the same thing as swimming, right? Like you can only think about swimming so much and eventually you just have to jump in the water and figure out how to do it and mm-hmm. yeah, it's I think that's so much of what we do athletically is just it's just experiences and it's things that we we feel and we subconsciously learn. And I, I do, I do like the idea, you know, with the isometrics and, and Jay Schrader talks about the pipes and athletes participating emotionally, but it, I intellectually is there. And I think athletes do have different intellectual needs. Like I, I did like to know why I was doing something to at least a degree that satisfied me. Like if I asked about an exercise and a coach didn't have a good answer for it, like I was, I would just check out like real fast. It, oh, was, yeah. it was more like that. That was my intellectual need. And if there wasn't an answer then i'm out like and and that was probably unfortunate in some ways but i think in, in some ways it was a good thing but yeah but you can definitely get too far you know too too involved yeah and i think even like going back to things like you know self-determination theory right you know it's like if you have a little bit of an understanding just even to know that what you're doing is useful right to towards your goals like you're going to be able to put more attention into it you know if you're constantly questioning you know what you're doing and you're not getting good answers out of that uh, it's hard to start dedicating resources you know repeatedly to those things and i I saw that even in the you know training you know general population clients who you know just just regular regular people with with more health-based goals you know if you you didn't always have to over explain every exercise but if they had a question on something you better have an answer Mm because if you didn't have an answer they flat out wouldn't do it or they do it like really really kind of half-assed, you know, from that perspective, where it's just like going through the motions. And like we know from an execution perspective on any exercise or drill, like intention matters so much, mm-hmm. right? We, we can have, you know, <clears throat> 10 athletes run the same drill. And if they're running it with different levels of intention, they're going to get different things out of it to the point where some of it might actually have diminishing returns. You know, if you're running things with very low intention, you know, so it's like that, I think, you know, and, and again, even going back to that earlier conversation, like being able to reframe like rate limiters for people as performance enhancers, yeah. you know, and, and not talking about limitations, but saying like, hey, we're going to add this new drill in to improve your ability to do X, Y, Z, you know, I, yeah. I think is an easy way to term it to get them excited about the drill rather than get them maybe more emotionally threatened or distraught about their inability to do something, you know, based on that capacity. And that's where I think, you know, even just 
language with athletes and, and understanding, you know, what's going to be motivating and what's going to get them, you know, moving in the right direction progressively is, is huge for coaches as well. Yeah. It's the easiest thing in the world to, I think, go to like a weekend seminar or something and learn what's wrong with athletes, you know, liabilities, and then come back and be like, oh, this is your, you know, it's like, that's not good. Like that's, not, don't do that. It's uh, yeah. even, even now, I mean, I, you know, back, back in like my high performance track and field years, I didn't even, I, I mean, I could go back and tell you all the compensations or a lot of the compensations and weak quote unquote weaknesses I have or had. But if I would have, I think it was very to the best that I did not know about those back in the day mm -hmm. that I was unaware and yeah, it's like even like getting into like language or neuro-linguistic programming. How are we framing this? How is the athlete perceiving the language or what the workout is or the purpose of this? And yeah, I think some athletes could probably get away just fine, just saying, oh, yeah, this is a liability. I'm going to shore it up. But not there's a lot of athletes who I think that is going to be a subtle, a subtle issue potentially. So yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. So this might be a little bit, a little general. I'm kind of laughing as I'm getting ready to ask you this, uh, just because it's it's kind of a it, there could be a lot of things, but with the micro and macro, like I like to, I like to think about like with the, the, the hill running thing, right? Like you talked even about, like I talked about it in context of hip extension. You talked about it in context of feet and lower leg and how much better would it be for someone who wants to sprint fast? If I only had, you know, 20 minutes, well, I could spend 20 minutes just running hills or I could spend 15 minutes doing calf raises and hip extension drills. And then a few minutes sprinting, like what's better. Obviously the hills are better, right? It's a higher complexity. I'm knocking out a lot of things in one shot what would you say are some of the big movements be it in the gym or outside that you feel like really knock out a lot of things in one shot like like such as like the assault bike or you know various types of squats you know, it doesn't have to be an exhaustive list but i'm curious some of the things that you're like yeah i, I have this in the program because it i feel like it can really knock out this this and this for someone who's already functioning pretty well etc what are your thoughts there i, I think you know for one of the big things that I, that I'll use with a lot of the athletes, especially if like max output or max power, isn't necessarily a concern of mine, but like single leg RDLs, you know, and, and even looking at like being able to overload those with like hand supported, you know, single or wall supported single leg RDLs, right. Where at that point, you know, you can work through, you know, lateralization of a pelvis, something that's going to mimic more so like a mid stance to a late stance transition, you know, of a pelvis, right? As you go through kind of hip extension and hip lock, I think is a, is a really good drill and something that you can, you can really load pretty heavy, you know, respective to, to those things. I think, you know, your typical, you know, split squat variations as far as, you know, front foot elevated, rear foot elevated split squats. I've even pl been playing a lot more with just more of a a static position loaded split squat because I do want to load that back leg a little more because maybe that's that's a way to load the quads that I that I don't get through some of these other variations. And then something that I'll include with the majority of my athletes if they have an environment that that will account for it is like sled work. You know, I'm I'm a huge huge proponent of sled pushes, lateral sled drags, you know, reverse sled walks. I th I think especially just looking at looking at those as some of those uh, accessory exercises or even like GPP, depending on what a, pro a program actually looks like for somebody. I think you can get a lot of good just biomechanics. If we're looking at like just pelvis and femurs, we're looking at ankle complex and the ability to supinate and pronate a foot and, and some of those things. I think you can do a lot of that under a pretty high stimulus and very repeatable, you know, for a lot of people and kind of build some of the strength in the, in the lower legs and, and especially through the hip complex with that as well. From an upper body perspective, 
again, a lot of my athletes were doing a lot of kind of alternating reciprocal stuff with the pushes and pulls just to start building in rib cage movement that corresponds with arm movement and scapular movement. You know, and I think that's where we're trying to match things a little bit more towards what we might be seeing within gait, right? If we're looking at arm swing and, and some of those things, and that's going to be a little bit more coordination based, but at the same time, if I'm, if I'm using the right constraints, like I can also load those fairly heavy based on what that person needs. Cause it, cause again, like if I'm working with a, a basketball player, like the goal is not necessarily a 350 pound bench press, right? It's, it's the ability to, to produce force through, you know, shoulder flexion, but that's also going to correspond probably with the ability to move a rib cage and, and so on and so forth and create force, whether it's sprinting or jumping or whatever. So those are kind of the things that I work a lot with, with my athletes from that perspective. If, if I've got somebody who does have just a major deficit as far as being able to produce force, like that, I might get into more sagittal bilateral stuff just to get a higher stimulus with them. But that's going to be more as a, a, as the case dictates rather than kind of a standard for everyone from that perspective. From the perspective of like, like just getting a like posterior expansion is something talked about a lot, mm-hmm. getting the thorax back. Yeah. That, that's a topic that's been covered on this podcast quite a bit. From an upper body perspective, I know I've seen you like do like hanging leg raise variations. Like mm-hmm. I, I try to think about that as like, you know, that being like that more complex and involved version yeah. of some more remedial drills. Could you go into those a little bit as well? Yeah. Like I, like when I start looking at like rib cage and, and pelvis orientation, like I sneak a lot of that stuff in with ab work, you know, the quote unquote, like core that, you know, nobody likes to say it, but a lot of it is just looking at more classical ab training, but actually looking at the position and, and trying to drive a little bit of rib cage retraction and scapular protraction. And that's going to get more obliques and, and rectus kind of involved just based on how we're going to manage ourselves in space. And like hanging leg raises are a great way for me to do that. And I can drive some, some hip flexor strength, you know, alongside that and some capacity from that perspective. I do a lot of like uh, cable crunches for the same reason where I will purposely drive a little bit of thoracic flexion and, and try to get some expansion back there and work on keeping my shoulder blades more protracted and my elbows up high and pushed out. And then obviously you've got like your rotational exercises, something that everybody always loses their mind on when I do them is side bends, but I love side <laughs> bends. Yeah. And again, you know, it's, it's more so just for, for building up the obliques and, and probably the straightest line possible. It's not necessarily going to integrate into running dynamics, but I also don't do them to integrate specifically into running dynamics. I, I do them more so just to build up generalized strength from a lateral flexion and an extension perspective. You know, so it's like, those are all things that I end up doing, you know, four to five times a week, you know, from, from a core perspective or app perspective, at pretty high volumes. And from a positional perspective, it just reinforces a lot of the things that, that I'm trying to do. Like I'm, I'm a pretty classic, like wide ISA I've got, you know, if we want to talk about compression expansion, like I'm fairly compressed from that perspective. I don't rotate super well. That's something that I've, I'm working on. So if I can reinforce those with some stress from a ab perspective or an ab workout perspective, like that's an, that's a much easier drill and much more applicable drill to me than doing some of the more classic respiration based exercises. And and I'm still going to be applying, you know, strategic exhalations and things like that when I'm doing those. And I can get some, you know, diaphragmic action going on in there as well. So, but yeah, I, I end up doing a lot of those throughout the course of a week and just kind of sandwich them into the end of my conditioning sessions and end up programming a lot of them in for my clients as well. And 
they just think they're generalized ab workouts. You know, usually mm-hmm. they don't always know they're, I'm looking at something a little more structural or positional, but whatever, you know, I'll, we, I literally label it in their, their programs as like beach season, you know, is that the super sad and, you know, they don't, again, that's partly, yeah. you know, framing it for the athlete, but if they ask more questions on, I can give them more details, but yeah, if you, if you called, um, like arms and abs, if you called it like, you know, if you're doing the arms correctly, like if you called it like yeah. shoulder health and thorax retraction, people are like, this is stupid. Like, yeah, like this oh, is I, don't, I don't want that. I want, I want the pump. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's I want beat season. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. You know, speaking of the, I, I think with the time we have left, I did want to get to this question because I, I am curious. I hear, I feel like I hear different things from different people, but like how much of a deal do you make of the infrastructural angle uh, with athletes? Like how much of your programming uh, ends up being different on account of that? If you have it, you know, a narrow and a wide and they, they're the same, like they're both like basketball shooting guards or something like same demands. You know what I'm saying? Like how much are you looking at there? At least from the performance perspective, I know from the rehab you know, perspective, probably a lot different. Um, yeah. From a performance perspective, it's, it's a consideration, but it's not a primary consideration. You know, I, I will look at it as far as, and, and this is generalizing, but typically your, your wider ISAs are not great respective to rotation and, and some of those, you know, some of those qualities. So for those athletes, like I will drive more retraction based exercises. I am going to like say front load their squats probably more often. I am going to do some more alternating reciprocal work, at least within those like secondary variations, if not the primary variation, depending on, you know, some other things. So they, they will be considerations from a programming perspective where I do want to be able to get them on more unilateral based there. If I want to drive more just general rotation to build up some competency within those, within those qualities. Cause again, for those athletes, usually like they're, they're really good at producing force, mm-hmm. you know, respective to some of those. So I don't have to hammer the force production button all the time in training. I can kind of look at that as a, as more of a minimum effective dose and then give them more volume with some of the other things. And then with some of the narrowers, you know, those, those are people who typically might be a little bit more elastic. They might be able to, they might be better movers, but they might have a hard time creating force or resisting force. And and those might be people where I do add a little bit more like bilateral work with them because that might be more of a limitation than some of the other stuff. And I might switch that and, and allow them to do a little bit more minimum effective dose on the alternating reciprocal work. And we might focus a little bit more of our time on some bilateral sagittal strength and the ability to create some of that propulsive stuff, you know, and Again, it's, it might look like kind of a 40, 60 relationship versus 60, 40 relationship. Like it might not be the, these extremes where I'm spending just a ton of time on one versus, versus the other. It's more so just looking at the individual athletes. Cause I have had, I've had plenty of wide ISAs that also weren't strong, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I've had plenty of narrow ISAs that just based on their, their training history and their, their sport history, like weren't great movers, you know? So we, it, there, there's not a hard set rule, but you can kind of at least start biasing people a little differently potentially from that perspective. So it's, it's a consideration, but it's definitely not the only one. Cool. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I think it's also easy to overly simplify things too. It's like, Oh, this is the only compensation, the only presentation that matters and how I make my programs. And it's like, the more you learn about it too, it's like, well, you could be a narrow, but you could have a ton of anterior compression in your ribs and thorax and present kind of like a wide. And there's, there's more than just the one thing. So I'm glad you brought that up. Watch them play their sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You the gotta original find out screen. really quick. Yeah, the original screen. Watch them play. Yeah. Watch them. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, well, thank you so much, Kyle. I think we've uh, run to about to the end of the time we have, and I, I did have a few questions left over, but 
maybe we can tackle those some other time. And and as uh, is so typical for me, I probably wrote about twice as many questions as I needed to. So I, I'm grateful for your time and what we were able to get through. And thanks for being on the show, man. I appreciate you having me. It's always a blast. That wraps up another show. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy what we're doing, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're tuning in on. I would totally appreciate that. We'll see you all next week.